Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vish Want and Partha. And we're back with our weekly college football sprint with Zach Smith. Got a lot to talk about, a lot of crazy things happening in, in the world of college football. You guys ready to get into it? Let's do it. I'm so ready for this V. Let's do it. Let's let's get it. So we'll obviously start off with uh, Saturday's noon, big noon kickoff game, um, which ended up being a very exciting and interesting game for a variety of reasons. Um, Zach, tell us your, your initial just pure reaction to the game. I mean, I think that the two storylines that everyone's talking about, right, are Justin Fields is human is a human, right? He's not just like some superhuman uh, superhero. Uh, he's human, and, and and that's the first storyline. The second storyline is BIA is not BIA right now. Um, the secondary is, I mean, just really underperforming. So those are the two things that everyone's talking about. And, and when I really – here's what I took away from it. I always, I always watch a game, and I'm like, all right, what can I learn, right? Like yeah. that happened. We all saw that happen. Every, anyone with eyes and a brain knows Justin Fields struggle, struggled in the secondary sucked. Like that's just real. Yeah. Um, so what I, yeah. I, I was like, all right, what can I learn from it? And the one thing I learned is, is what is everyone going to do to Justin Fields? Because yeah. there was 41 drop back passes called 27 of them were pressures were blitzes. Yeah. And that was Indiana's game plan. Right. Yeah. And Fields was a hundred percent, had a hundred percent adjusted completion percentage when he was not blitz, blitzed. So that just tells you everything you need to know, right? Why yeah. would you ever not blitz him? He also yeah. was zero for seven when he was under pressure with two of the interceptions. So it's like, yeah. I'm a defensive corner. I'm like, yeah, the last thing I'm doing is playing base coverage on this guy. Like he'll yeah. just destroy us. Yeah. So, and, and, and let's get into that, right? Because that's, you know, Partha brought this up in another podcast and we talked about it is one of the bigger issues with Justin Fields is his inability. I don't even want to call it inability, but his habit of holding on to the ball too long oh, yeah. and not getting rid of it. Um, and it seems like it's something that become, has become a consistent story. How does something like that get fixed? Right. Because it's like, it's, it seems to be continue to go, go along that line where every game we're seeing the same, the same issue. I think it's really just, so I have two, two opinions. Um, one is just my personal opinion. The other one is, you know, fact-based. Yeah. <laughs> um, my personal opinion is he is waiting so long because this offense is featured around two guys and that's yeah. a problem. And yeah. it, we're, Ohio state is acting like they only have two guys. I know those two guys are excellent. I'm not yeah. saying they shouldn't be the main course and the side dish, but you yeah. need an appetizer. You need dessert. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, I can't for the life of me understand why Jeremy Ruckert is not more featured, why Trey Sermon. And maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not any good. That could be why. Right. We yeah. don't know because they don't do it, but they don't throw like I, I think yeah. about Clemson. Right. When they had T Higgins and Justin Ross. And if you try to take those two out, which you can do, you could take two receivers out of a game. Yeah. They had Amari Rogers and Travis Etienne. Right. Yes. They had that that appetizer and that yeah. dessert, right? Well, yeah. To your point, we do have a uh, Jackson Smith, um, I, I, and, Jigba. I would struggle with, and Jigba, who has crushed it earlier yeah, this season. Right? To your point, Ruckert was great a couple games ago. I mean, we have a bunch of guys, you know, there's a bunch of talented five-star guys just sitting around. And then even 
you know, we, we saw Demario McCall who's been there for a while flash. He can be good in spurts too. It's like, there are other, there are other weapons here that are being used. And, you know, I think, you know, I think it's hard because we, none of us want to be overly critical and overly praised. Right. Because what I don't think any of us, when we, when we talk on this show, we're not, people may label us Ohio state homers, but we got to be honest, you know, Ryan day still is a second year coach. Um, and, and there are going to be growing pains for him as a coach, as he develops through the actual experience of calling games. And, you know, another thing that happened was not kicking the field goal, Zach. Yeah. We're up seven. Yeah. You know, that's that's a mistake. There's no other way to put it, you know. It's it's a mistake. And I always go down to execution, though. I mean, they go for it. They should have converted. Uh, yeah. Justin Fields missed two two opportunities to convert. And it's just, I mean, they absolutely should have kicked it. But it's just unfortunate. I think I think one of the things that that I've at least I've praised Justin Fields about this year is his decisiveness. That was his biggest improvement from last year. And you saw a major regression on Saturday. I mean, I was looking at the analytics of it and kind of the the demarcation point is two and a half seconds, right? You get rid of the ball in under two and a half seconds, and that is usually a good thing. Over two and a half seconds, outside of some maybe some game plan, heavy play action over two and a half seconds is usually problematic. Right. And he yeah. was on Saturday, 86% completion percentage under two and a half seconds and 38% over two and a half seconds. And he was over two and a half seconds, twice as many times as he was under two and a half seconds. And yeah. I think his average uh, snap to throw time was three seconds. And yeah, it's like, wow. that's just, I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for that, but you saw it on his, the two, this second and third interception holding the ball forever, nobody's there, starts scrambling around, ends up getting hit as he throws it and just lobs it right to Indiana. It's like that. bad things happen, especially for an athlete. Like I'm just yeah. yelling like, bro, take off. Like you're yeah. a freaky athlete. Just go. Yeah. Zach, when you're watching a game like this, does it concern you? I remember at the Rutgers game, we were complimenting how many different types of plays that they ran. And something that stood out to me is in the second half, we're struggling and it seemed like we're trying the same thing over and over again. I understand, you know, Justin Fields is is a ridiculously good quarterback and it we saw him get punched in the face and, you know, kind of have to recover from that. But uh, does it concern you that we didn't do anything out of the box or different? Um, I mean, maybe a little bit, um, I, especially in that game. I mean, other games you could be like, oh, you know what? They're just they're just winning, trying to win the game, trying to you know work on their offense. And I mean, that was a top. That was the game of the year, right? Unfortunately, yeah, right. Like as sad as it is, Indiana was the game of the year, and and I look at it really one of one of two ways. The way we're talking about it right now, right? With a little disappointing. You'd like to see more, maybe flat, not flexibility, more diversity on offense. Yeah. You'd like to see better performance by the secondary. Justin Fields not make those mistakes. But then I always go back to Clemson struggled with Boston College, needed a fourth quarter comeback. Yeah. Alabama went to the wire with Ole Miss, who's three and four, whatever they are, four and five now. It's like every team has these games. It's just unfortunate that it was like the one formidable opponent Ohio State played was when they had it, right? Right. Yeah. And so hopefully it's just a bounce back. I mean, they were, what was it, 35 to seven with 12 minutes to go in the third quarter. Like if they just keep the pedal to the metal, keep doing what they did for over a half of football, they win that game by 40 points. And I think that's right. what everyone was hoping that for. That was obviously. even with the interceptions from the first half. Absolutely, right. It's yeah. not like then the mistakes happened. No, 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 that was through the mistakes, right? Yeah. 35 to seven, including everything we're talking about. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, just, just for the conversation's sake, it's worth digging a little bit deeper into exactly what pinpointing what the issues on defense actually are and how to fix them. Um, you pointed out the secondary, but I think also a second part of this is that our defensive line isn't getting pressure and yeah. we're not being creative in creating that pressure. Something you brought up in our conversation offline, Zach, is that there are ways to create pressure that we're just not doing. Like we're not blitzing. We're not, we're not being creative in, in, in figuring out a way to do that. How do we fix these things? Um, well, so I, th I think they did and, and you just didn't see it yet. Um, I, I, I was way, I was way more pleased with the schematic game plan against Indiana. I think the reality was Michael Penix Jr. is a good player. Yeah, he yeah, got rid of the ball because if you look at it, like, all right, so he had, there was 51 pass attempts in this game. There was 49 in the Rutgers game, right? So comparable. Yeah. Against Rutgers, the defense pressured the quarterback 21 times, right? Yeah. Against Indiana, they pressured him 46 times. So they doubled the pressures. They just only resulted in two sacks. And I really put it on the quarterback. He got rid of the ball. He, he got out of situation. Fast. He got rid of it fast, yeah. And so I wasn't, I was actually pretty pleased with the the COVID bye week, what it did for the defense as far as schematically. Um, I still would love to see Baron Browning be a rush end on third down, but you know, maybe, I mean, I'm not at practice. Maybe he's not dynamic at it, but from what I saw last year, I think he could be really good. Yeah. Um, but just little things like that. I think, I think they're on the right path. It's just the coverage. The coverage element is just, I mean, it's disgusting to be honest. What, with what, what, what do you see there that's troubling? Like, can um, I, I think it's personnel based to be honest with you. And I don't want to single any kid out. I've been yeah. going back and forth about this. Like when there's, there's two players that are not playing at Ohio state level and they need to not be playing. Like, it's just as simple as that. And yeah. um, I think Sean Wade is at a whole nother conversation. I mean, in my opinion, he was one of the be better players in that game. Obviously everyone knows the pick six. So that's an obvious reason, but this kid used to be lined up in the slot and outside of when they played press man coverage, his role was to be an underneath zone dropper or a blitzer, right? That was his yeah. whole identity in 20, whatever, 19. Then you fast forward this year without a spring ball, without a summer. Now he's got to be a thirds corner. And it's like that it's taking some time for him to grow into that. Playing the ball as a, as a bail corner It's not his strength. Obviously we didn't know that because he was in the yeah. slot the whole time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's two different conversations. Sean Wade is coming along. You know, he, he, by the end of the year, I think he'll be one of the best corners in the country. It's just seven banks was a little disappointing. He almost looked injured to me. There was a yeah. couple of deep balls where he's chasing him. And I'm looking at it like he looked like a, a three technique, a D tackle trying to chase him. I'm like, yeah. go seven. Yeah. Like, yeah. What? And then, you know, I think the safety position that it's time for a little, uh, a, a little roulette. Let's, let's see if we can get another guy in there. See how it goes. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and I, and I like how you're not, it's important for us not to really put this on our players, right? Because yeah. you've said this plenty of times, you know, these are, these are kids that are being coached to do certain things. And, you know, it's, it's kind of on the coaches and on the adults to kind of figure out how to put them in the best position to win. And if that means changing some of the personnel in the safety position or in the, in the slot to do so, just to get guys going, that's on the coaches to figure out because we've got depth of talent. We've got other guys that can, can step up. And I think the guys that are playing also clearly have the talent. It's just a matter of us all, we're all of them working together with the coaches and figuring this thing out. Yeah. And like, I always think of it this way and this really applies. I'd imagine this, you guys could tell me this applies to business and anything else in the world, right? The coach's job is two things, develop the player and then put him in a good position to make the play. 
Yeah. It's simple as that, right? Yeah. And when I watch the film, they're in the right position to make the play. They're just not making the play. Yeah. And so it comes down to developing them and getting them to make the play. Yeah. It's like you could say, oh, I hate the bail corner stuff. It's like, yeah, it's body on body coverage and they just got to play the ball better. Like yeah. we could hate off coverage, but it's it works like yeah. it, they're right there. Now they just got to go make the damn play. Right. And so that, that goes to development. And, and sometimes I get concerned when a coordinator is running the show and his position group is underperforming. Right. Yeah. That's always makes me nervous. Like you think of 2014 and, and the linebackers and Luke Fickle performed excellent. Right. Yeah. The quarterbacks and Tom Herman performed excellent. I've been around other position coaches that when they take over and become a coordinator, their position group dips. Why? Because of that individual development. And that's where I think we're at. Kerry's got to get these guys to play. Simple yeah. as that. So question on that. Um, there were multiple times this this guy Freifogel on Indiana had, I mean, a lot of guys on him covering him and oh, came yeah. down with the ball. Is he a real deal receiver or is that lack of execution? I think it's both. I think it's both. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, it certainly is a lack of execution to a point, right? I mean, it, it, when it comes to pure talent, Ohio State had the edge. And that kid, he played really well. He's got great ball skills. But a great corner in the right position, it's not. it shouldn't be that hard to break up a pass, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in my opinion, it's way harder to make a contested catch than to prevent one. Like yeah. just being a receiver coach for as long as I was, it's harder for me to go catch the ball if you were standing next to each other, then for you to stop me from catching it. Right. Yeah. And right. so I think it's a lack of execution first. And also that kid, that kid was, he made some player. plays. Oh my yeah. gosh. It was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It's it's, and that's, that's the thing here is, you know, before we move off, off this topic completely, I think just want to take a moment also for Ohio. you know, this Zach, when, when, when Luke was here, one of the favorite things for Ohio state fans to do was bash him. Oh yeah. But I think they didn't appreciate just how good of a coach he was in addition to how good of a recruiter he was because it, it's been really hard to replace him on the defensive side of the ball. Really hard, really hard. But that's, that's the nature of fan bases and Ohio state fans specifically. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, the worst yeah. coach in the world becomes the best coach in the world. Like everyone in the world loved Ed Warner. Now they hate Ed Warner. Everybody in yeah. the world, you know, love Tony Alford. And now he, he can't coach worth a damn, right? That, that's, that's coaching. Yeah. Everybody yes. sucks when you suck. It happens to me all the time. And now, yeah. and, and what really is, a, is a testament to that is when another group shines, it's like, that's their opportunity to shit on someone else. It's like, yeah. like Jeff Halfley's the best. It, see, I told you, Greg Shiano's awful. It's like, yeah. what? they're totally unrelated. Just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. We got to give credit to Indiana too, guys. Without like, a doubt. Yeah. They, they, they are a program on the, on the rise and I respect, more than anything, Parthur, remember you brought this up about the Penn State kid, the receiver, the other. Yeah. When you get down 35 to seven to a team like Ohio State, this BMF, and to continue believing, that says a lot about your program and where it's headed. 100%. That's exactly the comment I wanted to make, too, is, you know, culturally, Indiana has shown that they have some fight to them. And uh, Penix is is uh, undeniably a very good quarterback. And, I mean, he, despite, you know, it's weird watching him for me because the way that he throws that little sidearm thing, it doesn't look as effective. He doesn't look like he's going to be as good, but man, he was really impressive. He got it done. And you know, that it's top down culturally. It's, it's gotta be, um, the, the coaching staff, the players, you know, from the captains down that create that kind of urge. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's no doubt. There's no doubt. They, they're building something. And Tom Allen is a really, really good football coach. I mean, he, he's he's getting it done. And like you said, he's he has developed the culture. And now it's going to be about can they get the, get the players in there? And they're already, I would say, overperforming, right? So if yeah. they can get better talent over the next couple of years, you could have a legit program in Indiana, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and like you said, Zach, it's like you're competing with schools now that are struggling, like Michigan oh, and yeah. Michigan State. Why would you as a kid, as a, as a second-tier kid, think about going there when you could go to a program that the players like the coach, that the, the program is doing well and is on the rise? If I'm making that choice between Michigan State and Indiana as a kid or as a parent, I'm like, I'm sending my kid to Indiana. You know? Yeah, yeah they, they got a unique, a, a unique kind of spot because it's a really good academic school, right? Yeah. Now they're winning at, at – you know, second to to only Ohio State in the Big Ten, maybe Wisconsin. You could throw out there, but it's 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 a unique niche. It's it's like it's like Northwestern, but better, right? Yeah. <laughs> like better football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. Of, speaking of Northwestern, it was going to come on later, but let's let's talk about this team here because they stink on the offensive side of the ball. There's no there's no other way to put it. Yet they take they take down a. a a tough opponent, and they're undefeated. Um, we've talked at length about Pat Fitzgerald and how good of a coach he is and how good of a person he is. Um, Zach, what, what, what's the story of, of Northwestern? He's extremely well coached, go really hard. They they It's it's almost like the, the old triple option offenses, but it's not triple option, where it's like they just know what they're doing so well and they do it so well that it's really hard to stop a team that's that efficient. Right. Yeah. And I know Joey Galloway said they're just a bunch of fighting Reese Davises out there, kind of taking <laughs> taking a shot at white guys. Like I don't, I, I, I get white guys aren't that athletic, but damn man. <laughs> yeah. But it's just they're they're just a bunch of academic guys that know what they're doing, go hard, and they they play really hard. And there's some talented kids on specifically on defense, but they tackle well, they pass protect well, they run block well. You know, they're always moving forward. And so I, I it's it's going to be cool to see because Pat Fitzgerald goes on these, these roller coasters, right? Like every yeah. three years, you're like, whoa, Northwestern's good. Yeah. And then the next year, they're like two and nine. And you're like, damn, yeah. <laughs> life comes at you fast. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's it's going to be a roller coaster when you're coaching at Northwestern, regardless no, no. of who you are. <laughs> now, going to move uh, forward to your uh, your favorite topic, V. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dabo Swinney had some shade to throw at Florida State this weekend. You hey. want to give some color on that? Zach, I, I just there has to be something else at, at Clemson that's drawing these kids because if if this is the guy that's at the top of the pyramid at your school who comes out and makes comments like this, acts like a child multiple times every year, and doesn't act as if he is the head coach of Clemson, not the head coach of I don't know Oak, Clemson State. I can't even think of a name right now. <laughs> But to actually come out, it's one thing to think it. In All right, hold on, hold on, V. Let, let, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here now. So okay. I, we, we all know you hate Dabo. Let's start there. All right, so you have the most biased lens. Most of there. us hate him, though. Most of us, you don't, you don't care for him much either. I, I love him. He's like a college football character. So okay. what did he say that was so wrong to you? Well, I think first of all, to come out and accuse another program publicly of forfeiting the game or, or, or doing that when you actually do have a positive case and you do have a virus, even if you think it, 
your responsibility as the leader of a program, and Dabo's not just the leader of the Clemson football program. He's pretty much, nobody knows who the governors or the senators of South Carolina are. He is the go-to guy <laughs> in that state. But to be fair, V, we also did the same thing with Maryland. And this might segue but into a coach, news and Ryan notes Day did style. Not come out and say. I know, Ryan but this might turn into a news and notes style conversation. Are we not held to the same level of responsibility that we're holding Dabo to? Yes, we are, and our coach doesn't do the stupid. No, shit no, I'm saying, I'm saying, you and I and Zach, we we talk some shit about Maryland. Look, See, I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I, I disagree with V right now, and, and I, I'm not. I don't disagree on the front of the virus and a positive case, but. That's why they had thresholds. That's why they had had stipulations. That's like Wisconsin, in my mind, forfeited two games. Maryland forfeited a game. And Florida State just forfeited a game. They said, we don't want to. I get it. They evaluated the risk and said, we don't want to play. It's like, well, sorry, you don't get that choice. That's the ACC's choice. Well, let, let, let me play devil's advocate here. Like in the Maryland situation, they had something to gain. You know, Florida State is not a, is not competing for anything in the ACC. They're not competing for anything on the national landscape. So if you are the head of that program, right, and you know that you don't, you have a risk, potential risk involved, and on top of that, you're not playing for anything, why would you not err on the side of caution? And and the other issue concern, the main concern that I have with Dabo is that just come out and be forthright. like. You put football above everything else. And that's, it's not just in this case. He's done it. It's not just with COVID. He's shown who he is multiple times before this, right? And, and it's just not something that I am an advocate of because as a college football coach specifically, you have a different degree of responsibility than a professional coach to your kids and to the people in your program to protect them first before you care about football. And that's really why I, I I stand where I stand with Dabo Sweeney, because it's not just this situation. It's multiple situations that he's shown this. That that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if this was a one a one time thing, you could have you could have a different argument, but it's it's been over several different topics, right? That he's shown <laughs> that. But um I but I that's Dabo as a person. And yeah. that's a whole nother conversation from the, the, what is, what happened, right? Is that Dabo <laughs> kind of going on and on in the media and, and playing his little charades is just, I mean, it's, that's who he is. Let the but, media make that a story. They're going to make it a story anyways. They did it with Maryland, didn't they? Yeah, right. But I think my issue is that, that Maryland cancels a game with eight, eight positive tests, right? Uh, Wisconsin cancels a, 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 two games. With basically, I mean, we don't know how many because they never told us, but basically their starting quarterback got it, and that was all we really know. And they had a couple other people maybe or, you know, who knows how many. And they canceled two games. And then you watch Minnesota go out. They're down 20 freaking people, but they didn't meet the threshold, the Big Ten set. So they go in and play and battle and beat Purdue on the last play of the game. Like, how is this fair that these schools could just say, no, 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 we got the COVID bug. We're not going to play this week. And it, I, when I think about the Clemson Florida State game, they definitely had nothing to gain. But if you're just like an averagely tough guy in high school, right? And yeah. and the, they, they everyone in the school says, no, no, you have to go out back and fight like the Golden Glove boxer in the school. I don't give a shit if I'm trying to be like prove my toughness or not. I don't want to do that. I don't want to yeah. do that. 
<laughs> and that was what Florida State had to do. They're like, ah, we're not really in the running for anything, but I really don't want to get beat 77 to nothing. So I'd rather not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, not, and I, I don't, I don't disagree, but I think there's a, there's a difference between a s- kind of concluding that based on logic and, and actually accusing a program of, of, of doing it publicly, especially because it undermines your conference as well. And That's I think we, we talked about it with, with the big 10. It's like a lot of this falls on the administrators and the people who make these rules. It's not on the individual programs and the coaches, they are going to follow and play like we know this in anything in business and in life. If people set rules, if people can work around them to benefit themselves, they will. Right. So it's on the program and the conference to make sure these type of things don't happen in the future. This is, I think this definitely will turn into a news and notes conversation that we might just have to put into that segment. But I just want to point out the irony in this country that we tend to expect so much more out of our college football coaches than we do out of our politicians and business leaders. What does that really say about us as people? You know, I think that's the thing that gets me about all of this stuff, right? Is like, you've got, yes, we're mad at, at Dabo, sure. But we expect every single college football coach or athlete really to be perfect. And at the same time, like many of us are not. And it's this weird thing that happens in sports all of the time where, you know, I, I just feel like if we held business people and politicians to the same standard, we might have a different society. But then even then it kind of brings up the question of like, should we even have expectations for each other? Like, is it reasonable to do that when you have such diverse personalities in this country? Well, it's, it's always going to go to where the attention goes in, in this country and the attention, you know, you can say our priorities are messed up, but we care more about sports and entertainment than we, than we care about politics and business. It's just a fact. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of, you know, I don't have an answer to your question. I don't know if that does, (laughs) Um, but I just do not like this guy. Um, And and I will not. I mean, I I, personally, I think having been a college football coach, I think we should treat everyone like we treat college football coaches. We we should treat the refs that way. Like in that blown call in the Minnesota Purdue game, that son of a bitch that threw the flag should be on a podium answering why he threw that flag and made that audacious call. I think they should have to. Yeah. When businesses do stupid shit, it's like, whoa, timeout. No, no, no. Press conference. Let's go. And we we should grill them and hold them to that standard. Everyone should be like that. Uh, I I think, I think think that, yeah, I like that. It would lead to more accountability. And, right. you know, I, I don't think if I if I screw up, there's a lot of things that I think I've said on this podcast that I listen back and I'm just like, yeah, maybe I was a little extreme there, but <laughs> I would happily say that, you know, and right. I think that that's the part of culture we need to really focus on. I would love to hear more people say, you you know what? Yeah, my bad. Right. And, and it's like you just look at the the microscope that athletes that that the athletic world is under and it's like no no let's i'm i'm with it right i mean shoot i i lived it as much as anyone in the world ever has right i'm with it now give it to everyone and watch yeah. how people are like no yeah. no wait a minute no 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 i don't want don't don't look go through my twitter no like no one wants it and it's like yeah. yeah well you do it to these people let's do it to everyone we'll get yeah. the maximum accountability and 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 you know what it might not be real you you might have to be accountable for things you didn't do but yeah. let's just throw accountability at everyone I mean, and, and, and the final point that I'll make on it is I do think specifically college coaches 
need to be held to a higher degree, especially when they're making eight to ten million dollars and their players aren't making anything. Yeah. You have a higher degree of accountability than a professional coach who is dealing with professionals. There's yeah. no doubt. I mean, you're you're developing kids, right? You're you're yeah. and you're also recruiting. You're not you're not drafting. Yeah. You're recruiting. So you 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 kind of have an obligation to yourself and your program to put that front up at least yeah. for recruiting. Like it's it's almost like I mean, if I was a, par- a a real parent, like a real family, a real parent, and my kid was considering Clemson, I'd be like, I don't know what that that's petulant not, with that yeah. petulant douchebag coaching them. I don't know. Yeah, that's why it's got to be. It's got to be something else that's drawing these kids because it can't be him <laughs> for sure. <laughs> There's no doubt. Have y'all been to Clemson? I've been there. Yeah, yeah I mean it's I'm, it's gorgeous. I mean it's, it's gorgeous. Go- I mean gorgeous women. I went in, I, I went into the facility. Tom Herman and I went to talk with. Uh, Ooh, who was there? Their whole offensive staff. And um, we went to just talk football in the offseason. And we went into the facility and we're, I was went in the receiver coach's room. And there is this, I mean, the, the most stunning woman I've ever seen in my life sitting there. She's probably 22 years old, blonde, just gorgeous. And I was like, whoa, hey, uh, I was here to see Coach Scott. And then I've come to find out they all had an assistant, right, that helped with recruiting. And all of them were former Miss South Carolinas. It's oh. like, whoa, <laughs> like this is different. And it's gorgeous. I mean, not not a sh- strong academic school, so it's not hard to get through college. And, I mean, they win. <laughs> yeah. That, that, That's that, funny, those, are good, those are good explanations as to why they're winning. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, take a teenage kid from the South, put him in that situation. Yeah. You're like, bro, school's not that hard. You're going to go to the NFL and look at your recruiting host. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen that show, uh, Blue Mountain State? Yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Yep. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, moving on to our, uh, our friend at Cincinnati, um, did it again in a different fashion. Last week, they blew the brakes off of, off of East Carolina. This week, people need to, put into context that the quality of win to go down there to Florida and win this game on the road is, is, is definitely a huge accomplishment. What are your, what are your takeaways from that win for Cincinnati? Huge win. It's a huge win. And um, I I think people are taking notice. I, I, I saw, I, so I do my little analytic research every Monday morning and, and I was shocked to see, and you will be shocked by this. That right now Cincinnati has the fourth best odds to make the playoffs. Whoa! They, they surpass Clemson. They have a thirty-five point four percent chance to make the playoffs. Clemson has a thirty-three point eight percent chance. And I was, and I'm wow. saying this is ESPN, right? The ESPN analytics department put out this whatever, however they determine it. I'm sitting yeah. here like, whoa! Like never. Now it was a huge win, huge win for Luke. They have, I think, one. They play Temple this weekend, and then they have to play Tulsa, who. Their only loss was Oklahoma State week one. And so they got a tough game in front of them and then whoever they play in the championship game. So to, to finish it out, to finish this magical season, it's not like it's uh, it's already done. They still have to win some games. But I was just I was shocked that ESPN had their odds greater than Clemson's to make the playoffs. Can you imagine if Cincinnati – here's my dream. I, I said it on my show yesterday. My dream is for the playoff teams to be Alabama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Cincinnati. Three Midwest teams in Alabama. It would it would break the world. Yeah. It would break the country. It would. It would. It would. And then to see a Cincinnati Ohio State final would be even 
Oh my gosh. Even that you can find that a way would be crazy. Cincinnati against Notre Dame to sneak a win and let Ohio State try to take out Bama. That would be unbelievable. We are the Bama killers. Or we could let Cincinnati take out Bama. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that one's happening. <laughs> and, no. and, and to kind of just understanding how college football works, if Cincinnati goes through, has a magical season, makes the playoff, is Luke staying? Or do you think? I think it's got to be the. It's got to be the perfect opportunity for him to leave. Uh, like, I don't know why he would leave. He's making absolutely stupid money. He's still in the state that he grew up in and loves. His family's happy. Luke's very different from most coaches that I've worked with, where he is yeah. very family-oriented, and, and they're going to make decisions kind of like a normal business person would. Like, do I really want to move to Dallas, Texas for this little bit better of a job? I don't want to uproot my family, right? College coaches just like every three years, like, yep, go. Yeah. Coast to coast. And he's not like that. And, and so I think the right opportunity would pull him away from Cincinnati. But I don't know how many of those there are for yeah. him. You know, it's yeah. a personal decision. And I don't think he's moving to the West Coast. I don't think he's – I mean, I guess like if Texas came open, he'd have to take that job. I mean, that's top five jobs in, in the country. Obviously, Ohio State. And then the interesting ones would be like a Michigan or a Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think – I don't see him taking the Michigan job just based on who he is either. No, me either. So. I don't see anybody, you know, notable taking that Michigan job. Hmm. Nope. <laughs> I hope Dabo takes it. <laughs> I mean, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to hire a coordinator. And, and and I already have three in my mind that I would hire if I was them right now. But um, and, and to be honest, even if they could get anybody, I think that's the route they should go. It's just it's the route of that that has proven to be the most successful route. And for them to go hire a some Michigan man that's a head coach somewhere is like, yeah, that, we've tried that three times now. It didn't work. So let's, let's switch it up. Yeah. 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 So should we talk about uh, their W they pulled out against, you know, that incredibly tough opponent in Rutgers? I'm going to tell you what, probably my highlight of my year, right. Was they win in triple overtime against Rutgers. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rutgers screwed the whole thing up at the end. They should have won easily. They win in triple overtime, and they go to the sideline. And Ed Warner and Josh Gaddis, the two co-offensive coordinators, are jumping up and down, hugging each other. And I'm sitting here like, Josh Gaddis won a national championship three years ago at Alabama. Ed Warner won a national championship, what, six years ago at Ohio State. And look where they are today. Has this, They have the same reaction for a triple overtime win over Rutgers. It was just, the aesthetics were hilarious. Yeah, yeah it was It was fun to watch. <laughs> At least they're on the up and up, you know? I'm just, I'm glad that they're starting to, yeah, I don't know, man. It's disappointing. Just Michigan's real disappointing. I, I yeah. root for them to be good, but not as good as Ohio State. Yeah. Oh, I want, I, I mean, most Ohio State fans are of the opinion they want them to lose every game. They hate them that much. But yeah. I wish they'd win every game and come in undefeated in the Ohio State game every year. I so love the good. one and two matchups we used to have oh. in the early 2010s. But at Beautiful. least be competitive. Like you think about the 2016 game with Curtis Samuel and the 2013 game with Tyvis Powell intercepting the two point conversion. Like even when they're not undefeated, like the competitive game. that game. Yeah. Yeah. And then, or yeah. or the other side of it, right? They're really good, and Ohio State blows them out. Like those are fun when when there's yeah. something to talk about, not like they're terrible. And then you get to the game, and it's like, nope, yep, they're still terrible. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. And, 
boring. You know, it's it's Thanksgiving, right? So I'm back visiting my parents today, and I grew up. So for for our listeners, and I, Zach, you may not know this about me, but my parents taught at Fisher College of Business at Ohio State my whole childhood. So you know, all year since I was born, went to every Ohio State game, and I saw. I just retweeted this clip. It was the final play of the 2012. Uh, game where it was Urban's first year. It was the 12 and 0. And I went to that Michigan game because I was at home for Thanksgiving. It was while I was at college. And man, I stormed the field with my dad. And that was the first time I ever met Urban. It was on the field just so, so randomly. He was just standing next to me while, you know, everyone was celebrating. Yeah. And it was just like this special, fond memory. And, you know, I think that's despite everything, like, I, I would love to have those tight, competitive, intense Michigan rivalry games around Thanksgiving with the family, too. I mean, that was a, a huge part of my childhood. There's nothing yeah. better, man. There's just absolutely nothing better. I mean, I, you think obviously I was inside in it, and it's just that that eating Thanksgiving, then going to the hotel on Friday, then playing in that game. It's competitive. And, and obviously we never lost when I was there. So it was always a good feeling after. And here's a side note that no one thinks about is for a coach, it's it's always a noon game. So you're done at like four, four thirty. You can go home and actually see your kids. Like it, those th- that three day stretch for a college football coach, there's nothing better than being a coach at Ohio state for those three days. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now speaking of, um, of losing consistently. <laughs> let's talk a little, let's talk a little recruiting because might as well change the state name of Texas to Ohio state with what we're doing down there. And in, specifically in the Austin area, right in Texas's backyard, taking now the number one quarterback and the number one receiver. in addition to the guys that we've been getting the past few years, Zach, take us into this. Cause I know you played a role in the start of this, movement of why so many kids from the state of Texas, which I personally know from living down there, I don't care what anyone says, no state produces better athletes or better volume of athletes than the state of Texas does. Well, better football players for sure. I mean, I I would, I would contend that Florida might have comparable or maybe even a little better of just sheer athletic humans. It's close. Texas has well-coached good students and you know, whatever. Not to knock Florida, but it is what it is. <laughs> uh, the education system in Florida is freaking horrible. But um, getting back to the actual question, um, I, it's, I think I talked about it on your show before. It's Recruiting is a really interesting thing, and it, it happened with us in South Florida. And it's uh, when you go into a, a, a fruitful area, an, a highly recruited area, it's really hard to get the first one. And for yeah. us, it was Johnny Dixon in South Florida. Yeah. Once we got Johnny Dixon in South Florida, then you saw the Joey Bosa's and then you saw it's just all of a sudden it became in vogue to consider Ohio State. And it really it goes back all the way to Dontre Wilson, uh, which with Tom Herman signed him out of DeSoto High School. And that's kind of started it. it. It at least gave Ohio State a name in Texas. Yeah. Because Dontre was such a highly recruited kid, committed to Oregon forever. Chip Kelly goes to the NFL and it was really luck, pure luck that yeah. Tom signed him because the kid didn't know where to go. And he just kind of said, okay, I guess I'll go here. And yeah. uh, so that started it all. And then you just watch some of the efforts like uh, uh, Brett Baron Browning and, and, and Jeff Okuda. And that was a huge Greg Shiano yeah. for Jeff Okuda. And, and you, then you get those two kids and then you fast forward a little bit. And then we get lucky to, to go down there and recruit Garrett Wilson, who was born and raised in Dublin, but lives in Austin. So it's a Texas yeah. kid. Kinda. 
right? Yeah. But he loves the Buckeyes. And so Ryan Day and I recruit him and pull him out of there. And then you're just watching Jackson Smith and Jigba. And then it becomes like popular, right? It's yeah. like no different than a, than a clothing brand in high school. Like one popular kid puts on a, a Hurley shirt and everyone's like, oh, I got to go to the mall and get some Hurley stuff. And you're like, why? It's yeah. like, I don't know, because it's cool now. <laughs> right? and, you know, you're, you're touching on such a special thing there, Zach, the branding side of, of yeah. you building a great sports team, especially in college. I mean, and at the pro level, we see this, but the connection you can build with the community to your point yeah. by getting the high quality athletes, but also doing the camps, getting involved at the youth level, being a part of the community organically and for real. I mean, that's, that's special. And clearly there's a lot of community in Texas to V's point that you can really foster. There's no doubt. And the other thing is it's like anything else. Like you get one kid from South Florida, he comes up and hates the cold and hates the place. Then you're done. Yeah. You're not kidding anyone else, but yeah. these kids are coming in and the experience is matching the sales pitch, right? They're, they're finding out that it's genuine. And so then these other Texas kids come up on campus. Well, not right now because of COVID, but you know, you get the point. They, they come around and they get to know the other kids from Texas and they hear their testimonials. And then what I used to do, once I got Johnny, it was like, I would bring a South Florida kid up and I would just text Johnny like, Hey, I got some of your boys coming up. He didn't know him, but he just knew they were from South Florida and he would come over, he'd meet them. He'd show them around, talk to them, like take them to the dorm. And all of a sudden you have kind of your, your super agent who's relatable because he's from that area. He's having a great experience and he's able to tell him about it. And that's, that's testimony. And that's right now Ohio state has like seven Texas kids to talk to and everyone else in Texas is like, Oh shit. Yep. I want to go there. Yeah. Exactly. What is, if, if I'm, you know, all-star high school athlete, like the kid I, I tagged you on that quarterback who can throw 85 yards in high right, school, right. ridiculous. What's the pitch for Ohio state? Yeah. Oh, it's really easy right now. It's, it's, it's all about high level development and, um, and it, it you're going to get a great education and, and it's, it's a pros pro. It's like a pro team in college, right? Yeah. These kids come in and it is, they get the feeling like, wow, like this is like going to train for the combine, but for four years, they go to other places and they, they eat hot dogs and play cornhole. And it's like, that's all fun and games. Like we can do that Ohio state too. We did it on recruiting trips, but the kids leave because they see this is like that making it to Harvard, right? Yeah. Like I'm going to be set for life. They, they go through the process and here's the development process. Here's the testimonials. Watch how hard I, our guys work. Go talk to them and hear how hard they work. And then look at the, the, the branding side of things. We help you build your own personal brand. And then let's look at the real life development. We're going to set you up with a network and they show you how they're doing it. Not that they're going to, because I've been a part of that. And when we first got to Ohio State, that was one of the things I did. I showed them how big the alumni base was and Buckeyes want to hire Buckeyes. It's all bullshit because you need to meet those people and get to know them for them to hire you, right? So what Ohio State's doing right now is, is second to none as far as these kids are visualizing and seeing this is going to maximize me. And it's it. there's not even a lot left to chance. Yeah, I, wow. I, I agree with you 100%. And that's... That's something that Ohio State fans forever need to be grateful to Urban Meyer for, like taking him out of context of being a football coach. I think Urban Meyer is one of the best CEOs in America in terms of developing a culture um, and, and developing a brand because a lot of the kids that leave Ohio State and go to the NFL, they say the training for the NFL is a cakewalk for them after oh, yeah. they've gone through what they've gone through 
through at Ohio State, you know. And, you know, another thing, like you said, is the development aspect of this thing. I think the kid, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the receiver said he actually can see the development with his own eyes of Garrett Wilson from when he came into his freshman year to his sophomore year, you know, and actually to actually visualize that what they're saying is, is actually happening. is also a big part of it. There's no doubt. And and I will say this, that some of the stuff that was going on when I left Ohio state and and I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due. The guy Keenan Bailey that works there is a superstar in the making and people kind of know about him now, but the stuff that he and I were doing in recruiting that I know he and Heartline still do, just he he's unbelievable. He makes these cut-ups and these things to show specific things. And you see, you'll see it. If you go on his social media, he will he has libraries of cut-ups of just random things. And he'll see someone make a play. Terry McLaurin made a play in the Redskins game. Immediately he has uh, in the queue a clip of Terry McLaurin doing the same thing in practice, a church a a clip of him doing it in, in drill work, a clip of him doing it in, co- in a college game, and then him doing it at the NFL. And he puts it all together and sends it to me or when I was coaching or the, or a recruit, and the recruit's like, holy shit. Like, yeah. you just did that drill. He did it in seven-on-seven. Seven. He did it against the defense in practice. Then he did it against Michigan, and now he just did it against the Seahawks. And you're like, whoa. Yep, I could see the development. I mean, yeah, that's, that's amazing. 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 And I'm telling you, the kid is – He's not a kid. I guess he's a man. He's a grown up, but he um, he's <laughs> he's phenomenal. And and I'm sure that now has infected the whole program. And it's just yeah. it's it's really cool to see the development, but it has to be shown, right? You you could talk about it. You could say Garrett looks better, but if you show specifics and growth visually to a kid, it's like wow, like mind blowing. Yeah, man, that's amazing. that's yeah, honestly amazing. I'm about to give him a follow on Twitter and. By the way, I mean, if if anyone at Michigan became a listener of this podcast, I think their their program would get a little better from all the right. wisdom you're dropping, Zach. Right. I'll probably, I'll yeah, probably don't give up too much. Don't I'll give up from Ryan Day. Like, hey, bro, shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, it's easy to give knowledge when you know that your uh, your your program is set, and just because a lot of people who become successful. Or give knowledge more freely because they've already become successful. And I don't think. Yeah. And you, and you know, it's everyone else is playing catch up at that point. Who cares? Yeah. We'll tell you yeah. what we're doing. Guess what? Next week, we're going to be two more steps ahead. So keep chasing. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And going into Thanksgiving weekend, any, any matchups um, this week that you're paying particular, particular attention to? Oh, let me see. I'll, t- I'll tell you the, the only games that I think. So I'm excited to watch the Iron Bowl, not because anything cool is going to happen. I think Alabama is going to win, but I just love rivalry games. Yeah. That's going to be a fun <laughs> game to watch. Um, Michigan Penn State is a I mean, it's an in- interesting game, right? Because yeah. I think Penn State's going to win. And if 0-5 Penn State beats Michigan, it's got to be curtain call for Jim Harbaugh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it- with as bad as Michigan's been, almost lost to Rutgers, the games they have lost, if they can't beat Penn State when they're 0-5, like five other teams could, Jim, but you couldn't. That's I'm excited to watch that game. Really excited. Yeah. And then Iowa State-Texas is going to be a good one because Matt Campbell's taking on Tom Herman, and, you know, it's Texas has kind of bounced back from their shitty start, and Iowa State's on the verge of maybe playing in the Big 12 championship game, and it's going to be a good matchup, and I think it's going to be a really good game. And then the one, the, I won't call it upset alert because I don't 
know that I have the balls to say that it's going to be an upset, but North Carolina, Notre Dame, is it going to be yeah. an intriguing game? North Carolina hasn't played up to my expectation this year, but they have kind of some endearing qualities about them. So I, I'm, I'm excited to watch whatever those four or five games. I think you could see it. You could see an upset in one of them. Yeah, that's yeah, that, definitely. Definitely could see some upsets, especially on a weekend like this one. Right. Exactly. Thanks again for your time. Um, want to wish you and your your family a happy Thanksgiving, um, and we'll catch up with you next next week. Yeah, same to you guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Zach. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high performance lifestyle brand that makes the Lasso sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever, to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. It's time for some news and notes. You ready to get to it, Partha? Dude, I'm so ready for this week. <laughs> I'll let you take <laughs> the first topic. Dude, so I I put out some heat on Twitter about this, and I think it was well-deserved. Um, President-elect Joe Biden was uh, hitting people up for money this week. He was asking for more donations from people who had already donated to help him get elected to cover you know, their White House transition costs and i think what what really rubs me the wrong way about it is that everybody's suffering right now in this country yeah. and the policies that you know are in place limit a significant amount of you know regular everyday people and all of their income streams you know and to see that the backs of the people that you know put everything into him all this hope all this drive all this passion to get him elected he's then asking for more money publicly you know what i mean like yeah, i'm sure their rolodex their private rolodex has i don't know hundreds of millionaires in there you know yeah. send out a group text yeah but oh my god it just it's to your point in in you know we were talking about this it's super tone deaf man yeah and i mean it's a reminder of why our nation is so frustrated with our politicians and why we don't look at them as leaders and why people that shouldn't be leaders get followings because yeah. the people who have traditionally done played the role in, in government and politics have shown a major disconnect. And, and the thing that bothers me about this, this is someone, there's so many aspects of this that are wrong, right? Like, you are supposed to, we talk about branding. The United States has a brand, a specific brand for the president elect to go to Twitter and at, like you said, ask regular suffering Americans as the richest, most powerful nation on the world looks terrible, right? That's one way it looks terrible. The second point is the point that you're making, which is people are suffering and you have access, you you have you still have a kitty left from your campaign money. So you don't want to dip into that. You would rather go to people who are suffering and ask them for money. And it's like, who's making these decisions? Not one person up the chain of command to the president elect of the United States said, Hey, 
this might not be a very good idea. We shouldn't do it. And even him to not have the, at the as the final buck, not look at it and say, hmm, I've built a campaign talking about I'm going to fix the suffering of the average Joe. This might not be a good thing to do. Also makes you wonder, like, are we really just hopeless as far as our politicians understanding the plight of our country? Yeah, man. It's uh, to your point. It's ridiculous. And I think something else that rubs me the wrong way is the lack of media coverage about it. It's it's not apples to apples. I mean, this is a clear misstep and bad move by somebody who deserves to be criticized for it. I'm, I'm glad we're taking the time to comment on it, but we need more. And okay, I'll give you a small example. I ordered shoes from Nike last week, a couple pairs of Jordans. First two pairs of Jordans, by the way, and they're sick. So shout out Nike. Thank you. The FedEx delivery said they were delivered and they were not delivered. So I called them. I was like, hey, guys, like this is what happened. They were like, no problem. We'll send you another pair and didn't charge me. They sent another pair because apparently their shoes get stolen a lot. Right. Yeah. So about a week later, I find out that the original package was actually left on the sixth floor of my apartment building that I'm in. I'm on the third floor at a totally random apartment. Yeah. And that's what they had marked it delivered. And this very kind person brought it back to the front desk. They got it to me. So now I have, you know, twice as much as I ordered. And I, you know, I called Nike. I was like, I'm going to ship this back to you. They were like, that's really kind. Like the customer service person was like, nobody's ever asked me that before. I was like, well, I just feel like, you know, that's that's my bad like yeah it's fedex is bad but like yeah i'm happy to send it back go out of my way yeah go to the post office and i actually had to pay to ship this thing back man yeah and it sucked i spent 40 dollars more than i meant to because i had to ship this but you know what at the end of the day i feel happy that i did the right thing and i took the money out of my pocket because of the failure of the system right yeah and now we have our president-elect who has a failure of the system and rather than going into his own pocket or his campaign funds or the many millionaires around him, he's chosen to ask other people for money. It's just not the values that I stand for, man. It's just, I don't think it's what Americans stand for either. I think it was a bad move and I think that it's, it's a bad precedent. Yeah. I mean, what, there are two things that you and I talk about that need to be changed, you know, consistently and constantly, which is one, setting term limits in the House and Senate so that this disconnect doesn't happen. Because if if you continue every two years or every four years to face that challenge and not become used to your position of power, then you're more you're less likely to become disconnected. And then the second thing is we need to reform how campaigns in this country are financed um, and how financing generally occurs. Because like you said, every, each candidate should have a set amount of money that comes in and that's what they have to work with versus this system of cor- that, that produces the corruption that it produces with millionaires and billionaires basically dictating the terms of our country through the money that they're donating. Um, and, and, and again, it, the system exists because that's the way we want the system to exist. But if they really want to correct this thing, there are ways to do it. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. And I just, I see an irony in the, you know, the person we've elected to try and improve the system, asking when there's a failure in the system 
for more money from people who really can't the afford it. It's already failing. <laughs> yeah. Just a mess. Um, you know, speaking of the system and speaking of government, we have uh, a whole bunch of new COVID curfews that are being enacted. Um, I'm a very vocal opponent of the curfews because, you know, I, I've never seen a time limit on when you can leave your house affect the spread of a virus. It has to do with what you're doing when you leave the house, right? If I'm going to go, I don't know, on a run at night or whatever the heck I want to do, I don't want to have to think, well, I can't leave my house after 10 p.m. when I'm already stuck working from home all day, man. It's rough. And I get the argument that curfews are going to stop gatherings, but they're not from the people who don't wear masks. And that, in my my mind, and we don't have data to back this, so I'm just going to set this up as this is a personal opinion. But in my mind, the virus is not spreading through the people. It, it, it is, but at a minuscule rate, through the people who are going to restaurants, who are you know, following all the protocols we have. I see no failure in terms of the protocols that we've set up to date. And in fact, I think they may even be a bit excessive, as we spoke about last week with Governor Newsom in California, not even being able to follow his own rules. So to then add to the rules when there's a surge in cases in hopes that it's going to help, indicates to me a lack of understanding as to what's going on with the population of this country because it's not the fault of the rules. Well, you know, I wouldn't even say, you know, we we talked about this on Twitter and I gave you a little bit of pushback. I wouldn't even say it's pushback. It's just trying to have a perspective here that's that's honest and, and real. We have a problem as a country. And I think part of the problem is that we don't want to follow rules, any rules that are given to us. It's always about breaking the rules or you're impeding on my personal rights. And it gets to a point where now you see the United States of America has 12 million COVID cases as the most developed country in the world, which is inexcusable, right? For our country to lead at this margin, India is second and it has 4 million less cases. Countries in Asia have pretty much controlled this virus because their citizens follow when they're told to do basic things. They're not like, oh, a mask is uncomfortable. I don't want to have to wear a mask. It sucks. Like that's just whack because you're not considerate of, of the rest of society. You're only considering yourself. And that's that's the part of it that, bo- that bothers me. Now, to your point, as a result of the population being that way, our governors now have to make decisions based on circumstances that shouldn't exist in the first place. If everyone followed the guidelines, we wouldn't have this issue. Our restaurants would be back open. We wouldn't have to still worry about controlling the virus. Airline workers would have jobs still, you know, and it's like a catch 22 because it's like one, if you do not set, I think in our country, if people do not, if we do not set like strict guidelines of consequences for actions then people don't follow them. But on the other side, these governors, like you said, are taking some ludicrous steps at times. So I don't, I, I'm not really disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that there's there's a unique challenge that this epidemic or pandemic is exposing about our country. 100%. I mean, I think I'm on the same page from the standpoint that the people not wearing the mask and not stopping gatherings are likely the reason we're seeing the number spike, right? Yes. But my problem is that you're, you're not going to get those people to do it by adding more rules. Those people aren't already following the rules, but 
there's no enforcement of the current rules at all. Yeah. Like, and I'm speaking from the perspective of LA where, you know, there are, uh, for some short period of time, there were fines for being in public without wearing a mask, but that's, you know, it's not super reasonable on the beach to be really honest. It's just yeah. not what people want to do when they're on the beach. Yeah. So, you know, the enforcement's not really there. So I think you kind of have to make a decision as a country as to whether you're going to do it for real or you're not, yeah. but you can't, you can't go halfway on these things to your point. You either have to go all the way one way. Or you have to go all the way the other way and deal with the consequences of both sides. And, you know, yeah. I hear a lot of talk about the COVID uh, you know, the mortality rates and, and the numbers. And I would love, this is something that I might have to do on my own, but I would love to get a sense as to, because we have seen a rise in suicides. We've seen a rise in alcoholism. We've seen a rise in mental health um, issues and conditions that are rising in prevalence. I would love to see an overlay of that side of the toll of COVID, which is, you know, in part regulation based in terms of the social social isolation we have. So that we can truly weigh whether these policies are going to be better or worse. Because, you know, I'm with you, V. I think had we all locked all the way down for four weeks, yeah, we likely would have moved through it. But I think there's different challenges when you get this size of population. And the only other two countries that are larger than us, really, like India and China, China is not going to give us the real numbers. And India is not testing nearly at the frequency of the United States. So we also don't have a clear picture as to what's going on over there. But they're also a much more... Uh, extreme government from their use of, you know, violence and pressure to enforce rules. So um, that's not what I want over here either. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about it is, is consequences here mostly have to be financial and they have to be enforced. Right. If, if, if they said that if you go into a grocery store and you're not wearing a mask, there are, poli- there are police and law enforcement there that were going to write you a ticket for a thousand dollar fine. I think even the complainers would adjust their behavior, right? It doesn't always have, we know in India, they're just going to beat you, right? If they see you out without a mask, but you, those rules, like you said, aren't part of our culture, but fines are, you know, if yeah. they're gonna, you know, if I'm parked over a minute in a meter, I pretty much have gotten a ticket every time you guys enforce those rules and yeah. have, ability to enforce those very well. You should be able to enforce these rules too. And it's just, I think as a nation, we have to be, we have to have some shame and say, this isn't, we had a culture in America where if we saw numbers like this in in the eighties and nineties, we'd be like, that's not acceptable for the United States of America to be leading the world in, in something like this. And it doesn't seem like that's the case anymore. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say this too. If we didn't want to lead the the world in those numbers, we wouldn't test as much. We would we would definitely run this differently were it the America of the 80s and 90s from a transparency standpoint. So I think there's something to be said in the amount of, you know, real information we have access to today as opposed to what we would have had in the past. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of people not being tested and slipping through our cracks. And we have a country For sure. that's much larger, much more we're already socially distanced better than most countries with our population. So that's that's kind of the counter that I'd give I'd yeah. give, to that, give to that. Well and that's I mean that's kind of where I fall on this issue is that there's so much regional diversity. You know what's surprising yeah. to me is that the cities with obviously they're the densest cities, but the cities with the most um regulation are also the ones with the greatest spread of the virus and the greatest infection rates. So 
it, it really is, I think, at the end of the day, puzzling for me to see so many different data sources that contradict what the policies are being set up to do that you know all of these things not making sense indicates to me one of two things one the data we're seeing is not accurate or two the policies that are being put into place are not being enforced and you know i think is a combination of the two it definitely is a com- it's definitely a combination of the two and you know it's just hopefully we i think the only solution for this country and for a lot of places is the vaccine right just it's at this point, I think there is pandemic fatigue and a, yeah. lot of, a lot of things going on because it wasn't handled well. And the, the last point that I'll make on it is it's also, you know, we always like to blame the media, but the news media is horrible in this too, where they're not being consistent and they're playing for ratings as far as this virus is concerned as well versus just being a public service provider. Yeah, it's. I would characterize the media's uh, coverage of the virus as deeply irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of deeply irresponsible, um, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, got some bail offered. This is um, the kid who carried the. Was it an AKV? I think it was an AK. Shot some of the protesters. Um, during the during the summer he was 17 if i remember correctly yep and i just don't think there's an excuse for shooting people man there definitely is and there's definitely not i mean again i want to go back to as a country there's certain things that we should be ashamed of and the fact that this guy had a gofundme that was able to raise two million dollars for his bail tells you a lot about certain people I'm, I'm tired of not calling people out for the despicable people and human beings that they are because i think that they need to be shamed just like our politicians need to be shamed when they do things incorrectly you've got to have some shame and some character as a human being because these are the same people who will stand on a soapbox and 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 vote on pro-life right right and then they'll go and support a guy who murdered innocent protesters who it's not an equal and opposite reaction even if you disagree with their protests killing them isn't the isn't the reaction that you're supposed to have and it goes to show you again the deeply troubling issue we continue to have with race in this country and why minority communities feel the way that they do that they're not they don't feel like they're they have the same value for their life that other people do and and that contrast specifically, that pro-life, the same people who will shout pro-life will go and support this guy and go fund me is, a, is an interesting contradiction that really doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's um, I, I read that one of the two people he shot was armed. Um, but I think at the end of the day, there's never an excuse for for taking things into your own hands and trying to enforce things your own way. It's yeah. irresponsible. Kid's a kid. So how he got his hands on an AK-47, that's a that's a whole nother conversation yep. that we can have. But that is, and it highlights a deep divide in our country from a perspective standpoint. And I think the divide, uh, it's, yeah, it started pr- far prior to Donald Trump, yep. but it's uh, with Biden coming in, I have not seen it narrow, which is what many have, have guessed would happen once Trump left office, but I've seen the divide spread even further apart, which is 
indicative indicative to me that it's not related to who's running the country. It's related a lot more to a cultural subdivision that we've created. Yeah. And I think it's also the the information that we're fed. I think we all have to understand that, you know, I was reading an interesting article about how news ratings um, with chaos, you know, when chaos is happening, it helps news and media ratings and all these different entities who are struggling financially are looking for ways to stay relevant. And I think the best way to do that is to, to, to spark and spread controversy versus I remember watching the news as a kid and looking at it as a source of information, a source of perspective, a source of balance. When I listen to Peter Jennings or I listen to Tom Brokaw, I don't feel like that's the case anymore. All they're doing is inciting, inciting yep. these, these issues versus trying to solve them. Into the point of what we spoke about with Zach, we talked about holding everybody to the same standard as college football coaches. I mean, I think this is a great situation for you know us and and for anyone else that feels comfortable using their voice. You know, speak out when things are wrong. You know, even if it yeah. goes against the party you're a member of, even if it goes against your yep. friends, when something is wrong on a human and moral level, it's your responsibility to say so and to call it out and not in an aggressive way, but just to say, hey, that's wrong. That's not what we stand for. It's not what we should be doing. And we're better than that. Yep. Yep. And I think that will, that will go a long way in, yeah. uh, in, in, in fixing somebody else our country right now. Yeah. Um, moving on to some sports news. Um, we're going to start with a, a story that bothers me a little bit because we, we've talked about culture a lot on our show, right? Organizational culture from team culture. Um, Joe Burrow suffered a major injury uh, this weekend. Um, Heartbreaking. That, that now it's looking like he's going to miss the rest of this season and miss next season. Um, and the Cincinnati Bengals have, have gotten a lot of flack over the years for having a poor organizational culture. Um, and specifically in this scenario, they didn't, when you draft a quarterback number one like that, you've got to put in place a situation where that kid is protected. Well, they didn't spend any money on the offensive line. Um, he had been getting before this, getting beaten up in every single game. And, you know, there is, there is, we just move on from this and say it's football and, you know, he got hurt, things like this happen. But there are organizations that do a better job. Tom Brady got hurt one time, one major injury in his entire career. Why? Because the New England Patriots always ensured that he had a great offensive line around him. And so, yes, there is some liability that I think these organizations that consistently don't do what's needed to protect players in a violent sport need to face. That's just my soapbox on it. I don't know what your thoughts are um, as far as it's it's concerned. Yeah, I mean, the one of the you know secrets of the sports industry is that the medical staff and the performance training is is abysmal for most teams. It's one of the most overlooked areas of um, how the team operates. Usually the compensation for the physicians is very low, so it doesn't attract very good physicians from around town. Uh, it turns into more of an ego trip for the doctor that decides to do it for, for you know that year or for the next couple of years. Some organizations do a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, I know the Patriots organization well. They're excellent. They're a top-tier organization. I know the Dodgers well top tier organization. 
but there's a lot of, of, of teams and I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of teams that don't do a good job just by the way that medicine and sports interact. And yep. it's not really a, a fault of anybody. It's just the way that, you know, people have looked at training up until now. And yep. there's a, a deeper culture in football where um, that's different from like a basketball where old, uh, like a strength and, and uh, training coach is likely to be an older player from the team as opposed to, you know, a medical professional or expert and that can be a really good thing but in many situations it's uh you know it's great to show love to those players but it can be a bad thing if their philosophies are kind of the old school philosophies that don't really take into account how the body works and really are more about grit um and focused in the realm so anyway i i'm not going to comment on the Bengals, but i will say that there's a bigger problem across all of the nfl from the standpoint of how they take care of their players. And to their credit, the NFL has done a really, really good job in terms of actually being a part of helping companies that innovate like us interface with teams, get involved with the NFLPA. They do a tremendous amount of work to try and correct this, and they're trying to do it through technology. And I think it's getting there, uh, but there's a cultural thing as well within each team that they really need to readdress and understand that the, you know, the, mentality with which they take care of the health of their players is going to create better outcomes on the field and i think you know philosophy wise when that becomes the top of the spear and then strategy and everything comes below player health yeah uh, people will start to um you know see better results see a better product yeah and i think you know i don't want to necessarily call the Bengals out. i think you're right they need help because there are probably two kind of family business organizations still in the NFL. And that is the Cincinnati Bengals and the Oakland Raiders. And when you're running a family business and it's a multi-billion dollar institution that has so much, so many different moving parts, right? It becomes more challenging to not let certain things slip through the, slip through the cracks. And I think, like you said, I think addressing and creating uniform standards is, is a great way to kind of fix some of these issues. Yeah. And just to say too, like if, if you're young or if you're, you know, any age really, and you have a passion for sports performance, there's a lot of room in the sports industry for you. There's not enough people that are good at that. And so there's a lot of room to be great at what you do. Exactly. Exactly. So look into it and, and happier Ohio news. I think, you know, this, this is, so 2020, the Browns are now seven and three. I think that's more wins than they've had in the last seven years. Yeah, it, it's a weird situation. You know, I, I don't even know what to say about it, but something's working. Maybe yeah. it's the COVID. Maybe it's the uncertainty, but they seem to be thriving mentally. Yeah, I think it's the coach. The coach has instilled a culture that was lacking in Cleveland of just accountability and, and feeling like he has your back. I was, I was a little critical of the hire when, when it was made because I didn't think that he necessarily had the experience um, considering all the, the missteps the Browns had make. It was easy to, to question this one as well, but I'm really impressed with, with Stefanski and, and also the organization because he also is one thing I'm seeing in just the football perspective is I don't know how good Baker Mayfield is as a quarterback yet. I mean, his expectations are as a number one quarterback are rightfully high, 
but he clearly is still developing. Yeah. Um, but he's figuring out a way to win while that development is happening. Would you contrast that with what's happening in Philadelphia now with their young quarterback, um, not putting him in a position to win? I really like that aspect. We're, we're, we're emphasizing the run and our defense and just playing good competitive football and not making our number one quarterback, putting him in a position to fail. Um, and yeah. I think that that's going to help with his growth and development. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's spot on. And it's always interesting with these younger quarterbacks too, um, to see them grow and turn into you know the mature version of themselves. I mean, to the point of what we were talking about earlier, it shows you just how young these college players are. There's a whole yeah. lot of maturity and really a brain development that needs to happen before yeah. these guys are really ready to take command and run a team. But, you know, winners are winners. People who understand that despite where their skills may be, they have to find a way to get the W and they know how to make that happen. That's a unique skill set in life. And yeah. so when you find yeah. those people and, you know, maybe Baker is one of those people this season. Uh, he has has not been able to get it done the last few years. But uh, if he does turn into that, then uh, that's a really, really great quarterback to have on your hands. You know, even if he doesn't possess uh, the same level of skill as others. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And the thing that I like is that he's cheering as his his teammates. I would be, too, if they're helping me win. Yeah. Um, but he's his attitude toward the process and what's happening is, is much more positive than it's been in past years. And yeah. to that you have to give credit to the coach. Yeah. Know? Yeah. To the organization itself. They've, yeah. they've really stepped it up. Yeah, they have. They have. Next topic is one that uh, I think we'll have a lot to talk about ESPN. Um, and, and, ESPN is the worldwide leader in sports. It's been the worldwide leader in sports. That's what they label themselves. But they've been really struggling with the changing landscape of the sports world and, and, and sports media. Uh, Turner and, and Bleacher Report kind of created and understood the new generation of fans who like to digest content in smaller bites through social media and through clips and they've kind of captured uh, a niche that ESPN has been trying to catch up to because they still rely on that old model of subscriptions through cable networks kind of fee- paying the bills, right? And yeah. overcharging. ESPN is is known for being bullies in terms of the rates that they charge cable providers. And now also there's a changing landscape in that as there are more free options now for people to digest sports when they want to versus live, you know, there are right. plenty of ways that you can watch a sports program online without tuning into ESPN. Right. Right. Um, or watching it later or watching it through highlights and clips. Um, and the thing that I look at with organizations and we find this is how do you adjust to a changing landscape? And from what I'm seeing, it seems like ESPN is making misstep after misstep after misstep and how they're handling it. Just want to get your thoughts on on one, not just bashing them, but one addressing what the problems might be, and then two, how do does a behemoth, a model this big, kind of go about fixing some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, it's in my opinion, you fix it through acquisition. There's a ton of media properties being built in really intelligent ways. One that comes to mind is Wave TV. Uh, It's a friend of mine, Brian Vern, who runs it. 
And they basically, I mean, to your point on Bleacher Report, they understand how the new generation understands content and how they process it. There's another one called Playmaker. Um, uh, another couple of friends of mine, Brandon and Devin, and they are crushing it in the basketball space from covering the yeah. content. If you're ESPN, you need to be buying as many of these groups as you can, signing them to multi-year deals where they're creating content for you, just like House of Highlights did with Turner, where they're creating content, creating highlights, turning things around, just like the YouTubers who work for the NBA who put up the highlights, the like clipped highlights very quickly after every single game do, because you know NBA realized, I think it was Turner again on that one. Turner's very forward-thinking as business. Yeah. Turner's the one that realized wow, these kids, you know, that are in some random basement in, you know, Tennessee are turning around NBA clips faster than anybody on our team. And they get way more views than anything we post on the NBA channel. So maybe we should hire them. Yeah. And that's the right play. If you're one of these giants, you just have to understand that your talent in the new generation um, can they're willing to work for you they adore espn as a brand everybody does yeah. but that's quickly fading as they lose relevance and turner made a great move with bleacher report yeah they you know, did to bleacher report did a great job with bleacher report too yeah <laughs> to get to get to turner yeah you know, and then and the other thing is i think we see this and compared to the record industry when cd sales and, and the digital transformation happened right they had a lot of trouble. The big major record labels had a lot of trouble adjusting to the new model. And I think that's what ESPN is going through. It's like, I think they're averaging a 6% reduction in subscriptions every year. And some cable providers are like, no, you know, we just don't want to pay this much just to have ESPN, you know? Yeah. And then the second part is, are they focused on their content? You know, like there's a, tr there's a drastic difference in the quality in TNT's NBA broadcast and ESPN's broad NBA broadcast. So it's, yep. it's the technology, but it's also the content. And then also being greedy, right? When you're a big company and you have big bills to pay, like a big thing is like they're paying for these sports rights. That's the biggest expense. So you have to think about when you get that, you have to think about how do I monetize this advantage beyond just the broadcast? Because I'm paying a lot of money for these rights. Right. So I better maximize my return on that investment. And that goes beyond just having the exclusive rights to broadcast it, right? Yeah, that's a really good perspective and point on that, V, is you can take the same product and monetize it a hundred more different ways than ESPN has done thus far. Yeah. And then, you know, the final thing is I think they're monetizing it the wrong way. They're pissing the wrong people off, which is the consumer you're already generating profit from the data of somebody who has an ESPN subscription, who's registering for your fantasy football content, who's going to your website and clicking on stories. ESPN, somebody at ESPN came up with the creative idea of, hey, let's charge people for more content. And it pissed a lot of people in the fantasy football community off because the hate love segment is something that everybody, every fantasy football player goes and at least glances at it. I don't I'm not a huge advocate of Matthew Barry's analysis, but I still glance at it. But one day last week, you just turn it on. And, and now it's like, you got to pay for this content. It's like, okay, you guys are already monetizing me from the data that you're taking that I'm giving to you. Now you want to monetize even more. You're going to piss me and other consumers off to the point that why wouldn't they go to the platform that's offering it for free now? Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. Bleacher Report's not charging for a lot of their content. It's, they're giving it to consumers. So it's like and to make the point on written content too. We've got the Athletic, who's done an incredible job building their business, and people are willing to pay for that content. But the content is a whole heck of a lot better than ESPN's in general when it's yes, written. It is it's thoughtful. These are good takes. There's good evidence. There's good stories. There's good interviews, and I think we're starting to see that um, the you know old media model just doesn't work in 2020. Yeah, and either you're going to ch- change or adapt, or eventually you're going to die. No business lasts forever. We know that. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So just to move on, um, staying in sports lane, we've got the NBA. This is this has been an, an unbelievably fun off season to keep track of. Um, Lakers, as a LA, you know, resident now, I am such a big fan of what they've done in the off season. I mean. I have never seen a championship team get this much better with the moves that they were able to make. And, you know, a lot of credit goes to Rob Polinka on being such a brilliant GM. He's done a great job. I think he was like sixth or something, third in the executive of the year voting last year. Uh, yeah. But, you know, just from these offseason moves, I mean, you've got him, you've got Sam Presti, you've got Daryl Morey, and that's, you know, about as good as it gets. Yeah. I mean, it's so fun. And I know you probably feel this way too, is when you grow and as you become a businessman and you start looking at these things as businesses versus looking at it through the lens of a fan. Right. And I think through the lens of a fan, if you're every other fan in the, in the NBA, you're trying to make excuses and and be mad at the Lakers for the moves that they're doing. They won the championship and now they're significantly better. But I think when you look at it from a business perspective, they're just a better organization. And so if you're another organization in the NBA, then you try to figure out how to improve and you look at their model and say, what are they doing right? And they're doing a whole heck of a lot right because you can't just say, oh, it's LA, it's the Lakers. No, they, for a period of time, even with Kobe Bryant on the team, could not figure out how to build an organization and win. Yep. They find, they finally fixed the problem. You know, it's it's and it's a credit to Rob Palenka, but I also want to take a moment to talk about LeBron James because I think he gets a lot of flack for kind of controlling his, trying to control his own destiny. He wants to run every part of the operation. But if you look at his resume of doing that, he's been more successful then he's been unsuccessful. Yeah. And I also want to make a point about, about Rich Paul, who I've known since he was promoting parties in Cleveland to see his growth now into the best agent in the NBA. He is the best agent in the NBA. It's not just that he's LeBron's buddy, but if you looked at it, his players happened to have the only contracts last year that had guarantees set in place for the pandemic. That's beyond just being LeBron's buddy. That's taking care of your guys. And 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 also there's this, this worry about, oh, Rich is just bringing all of his players and their players to LA and funneling them to, to the Lakers. And that's not true either because Harold wanted to stay with the Clippers and they didn't make an offer. And he said he had to go to the Lakers as a result yeah. of that. And also you cannot, you can't, LeBron is working within the rules. There's nothing that's illegal about what they're doing at all. 
And there's no argument that can be made that going to the Lakers isn't the best situation for, for Rich's clients as clients as well. So, and, and this is something that's been done in the NBA for so long. We know behind the scenes what happens and why the Boston Celtics were always stacked beyond every other organization. People are just mad now that it's LeBron doing it. And it, and it, yep. it, it frustrates me. So this is where my LeBron is the go argument really stems from is that, yeah, MJ liked to trash talk. That was his thing. He liked to mentally dominate players. LeBron uses his mind differently mm-hmm. and he is playing way beyond just what happens on the court to be yeah. a winner. And yeah. we all have had put so much pressure on him during the first 10 years of his career into Miami, win a ring, win a ring, win a ring. Yeah. And he's done it four times now and his team keeps on getting better. I mean, yeah. he's clearly figured out a few things about how the game works, how the, how the industry works that other people hadn't figured out. And I think in my mind, you know, whether, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're not breaking any rules. They know what they're doing, but you know, whether people look positively or negatively upon um, how he and Rich Paul's relationship is and, you know, the leverage that Rich has built and, you know, the weight that LeBron has, especially being in LA to be able to recruit players. I mean, well played, you know, that's the right moves to make. Yeah. And again, let's, let's, let's remember this is basketball. This is sports. This is entertainment, right? So whatever's happening, it's like, enjoy it and accept it and embrace it. And, and I'll be honest, 10 years ago, probably would have pissed me off. You know, it, (laughs) it, it hurt me when LeBron left for Miami. It did, you know, but part of growth is understanding how the world actually operates and how you put yourself and your, the people around you in a position to win would people, people would, would probably be more upset at LeBron if he was just handing money to all his friends. Instead, he's creating opportunities for them to succeed and thrive and they've developed and they're thriving. So it's a success story that should be celebrated and not looked at in a negative, a negative light at all. hundred percent. And then finally to our last topic, uh, Gordon Hayward is now down in Charlotte um, this is interesting. I was glad they picked up LaMelo Ball, too. I think I think it's going to be a good fit for him to play um, under MJ because I think he has a, a tremendous amount of talent. I think he, um, he'll he benefit from the mentorship that Michael will be able to provide. Um, I like Hayward a lot, man. I think he was really underutilized in Boston. I think that he had a brutal injury from which he's made a really significant comeback, and that should be celebrated, that he's still able to play at that high level. And I think in the right system used the right way, he can really thrive. Yeah. And I think this, you know, we talk about groupthink. I think there's been this thing, this perception of Michael Jordan put out there that he's a terrible owner and a terrible GM and every move he makes is evaluated through that lens. And I think it's an, it's unfair criticism because when you fully understand the NBA and you understand the unique challenges that come with being in a market like Charlotte versus being in a market like LA, There are a lot of owners who don't try to compete, who just want to earn the revenue and do the bare minimum that they need to do to put a team out so that they can share the TV revenue. I think we have to give some credit to Michael Jordan for at least trying. Yes, he probably has to overpay guys that he thinks are pretty good basketball players in order to keep them or get them to come to Charlotte. And yes, Gordon Hayward has an injury history. He has all of these issues. but Gordon Hayward, when he plays, is probably worth this contract. 
if he's yep. healthy. And not only that, it improves the the program in Charlotte. It might not take them to a championship contender, but I think it's really, really unfair that they they criticize the criticism that's levied on Michael Jordan sometimes because I think it's just let's pile on because it's the fun thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, on, on that note, on the note of, you know, live life on your own terms, push on your success and learn how to thrive. I think that that brings us to the conclusion of this news and notes segment. Show the pilot boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. Fan of our content? Help us continue creating by supporting us on the Pilot Boys Podcast Patreon. Donations start at just $1, and there are some cool perks for higher-level donations. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. We're wishing you and your families a happy and safe Thanksgiving, and we'll see you guys next week. And always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up. We don't fly.